Hope we have a good class and a good conclusion to the day. The lesson tonight is the ninth in this series on the strategies of Satan. And to enter the study of another one of those strategies, one that he uses so effectively, we'll go to the book of Job, mainly chapters 1 and 2 at the beginning of the book. Satan became before God there, as you read, and he maligned Job. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, he told God that Job's allegiance and loyalty to him, to God, was only superficial, and that if his most prized possessions were taken from him, that he would curse you, speaking to God, that he would curse you to your face. God permitted Satan to destroy Job's family and all of his wealth and then his health and finally his honor. If anyone ever had reason that I know of to be downhearted and dejected, it was this patriarch Job. He was certainly downcast and depressed, but not to the point of giving up. Rather, we're told in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, that Job arose and tore his, his robe. He shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there, meaning that he would die. Then he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in verse 22 there it says something very significant. Through all of this, Job did not sin nor blame God. And then it got worse. Satan afflicted him further. We read in chapter 22 and verse 7 that he smote Job with sore balls from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He was so loathsome and in such pain that his wife couldn't stand it. She gave up hope. And she told Job a way that he could escape all of this. <clears throat> In verse 9 of chapter 2, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. Folks, it's common for severely depressed people to try to escape their problems by suicide, killing themselves, destroying themselves. I have known several people who did that including students that I had. But suicide is not, and they didn't do it because they had me as a teacher, at least I hope not. <laughs> but suicide is not the right response. It's just a long-term solution to a short-term problem. I'd like to repeat that for emphasis. Suicide is a long-term solution to a short-term problem. In chapter 2 and verse 10, we find that Job refused to take that, that avenue. 
he told his wife, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then it repeats, and in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In chapters 1 and 2, the text is very plain that Satan was the one behind all of Job's troubles. He was doing all that he could to produce such discouragement in Job that he would become so downhearted that he would turn away from God and sin and be lost. And what he did to Job, friends, he does to you and to me and to all of us whenever we experience difficulty or adversity in life. He quickly moves right into the center of such a, a situation and he darkens the scene and he motivates us to feel as discouraged and as hopeless as he can make us. Discouragement is what we're talking about tonight. It is a very powerful tool in Satan's arsenal and an effective strategy in his war room. With it, he can lead the best of us if we're not aware of what's darkening our world and making us feel bad he can lead us into sin and worse trouble. Many Christians who had been doing a good work for the Lord, but who run, ran into a bumpy set of um, setbacks in their life, have become discouraged, have suspended effort, <coughs> excuse me, and then fail <clears throat> to do any further good. Satan defeated them with discouragement. Discouragement is so much a part of experience that you do not need to be told what it is. You've all had plenty of experience with it, I'm sure. But I find it both interesting <clears throat> and very helpful to study this word. For in so doing, we learn some things that will help us deal with it better. <coughs> The word itself is rarely used in versions, English versions of the Bible. But many terms, many other terms and expressions that mean the very same thing are very, very common. And we must consider them to see what the Bible has to say about discouragement and, we, and, and how we can meet it and overcome it. The word discourage has a history in its development. It began with a three-letter word about two or 3,000 years ago, Latin, C-O-R, core. That meant heart. Like most ancient peoples, the Romans believed that the heart is the center of human emotion. Any mood you experience is the product of what is going on in your heart. If your heart is in good condition, you'll be happy. If your heart is in bad condition, you'll feel very sad, pessimistic, probably unfriendly, a person to stay away from during that period of time. This view was held by the Hebrews, or the Hebrew people, 
And so it's found in the Old Testament. For example, in Proverbs 15, verse 13, we read this, A broken heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. A broken spirit is the Hebrew way of expressing the same thing that we do when we say discouragement. Something happens within our heart to break it. And then we're plunged into sadness and discouragement. Let me give you a real life experience that I had some part in. When I was preaching in Gallatin, I was there from 81 through 98, but this was in the year of 91. There was a young man in our congregation whose girlfriend left him for someone else. His heart was broken. He was very, very discouraged, but he didn't tell anybody about it. He didn't talk about it. And then one night, he called her on the phone. He tried to talk her into reestablishing the relationship with him, and she said, no, it's over. And he said, well, I just got one thing else to say. Please listen for the next few seconds. She listened. Later, she said all she heard was a bump, and after that, nothing. When his mother, Paula, went down into the basement next morning, he was hanging from a rafter, dead. The bump she heard was the chair that he kicked over. The Sunday morning before that, this young man, whose name was Roman, at this time he was about 19, he waited on the Lord's table. I baptized him about a year and a half before. And there, the men who sat on, uh, served the Lord's Supper sat on the front pews. And I can still see Roman sitting right there looking at me through the whole sermon. That was on Sunday. On Friday night following was when he hung himself. The next Sunday, I officiated at his funeral at Alexander Funeral Home in Gallatin. It was the most crowded funeral that I've ever been to. The building was crammed with people. There was a big crowd in the yard, and I think they put a loudspeaker out there. Nearly all of Gallatin High School came to it because he had been an outstanding football player there. Centuries after the Romans, the French language developed from Latin. And they took this three-letter word, C-O-R, that means core, heart, and they changed the spelling to C-O-U-R, which I think is pronounced core. If I'm right, Pat, would you hold up your hand? <laughs> ah, good. Then they prefixed that with a D-I-S, dis, which signifies the removal of something. And that became our word discourage. Then by adding an M-E-N-T on the end of the verb, they made a noun, discouragement. And that refers to the state of mind in which you've lost confidence that something will, will not succeed or that something will not advance an important cause, or that something will not rectify a wrong that's in your face. Discouragement has a speech. 
It says things like this, it can't be done. That won't work. It accepts defeat before the battle ever starts. Before the, sh the first shot is fired, it runs up a white a flag and surrenders. The condition in which discouragement is most evident is that when your faith is really weak and you draw the conclusion that the force of evil that is present is too strong to be resisted and too destructive when it overwhelms you. Why does a Christian's faith become so weak in the presence of evil that it cowers and slinks back into the shadows and easily gives up? Friends, it's because the person experiencing that does not know 1 John 4 and verse 4. Or if they do know it, have not been convinced by it. What does that verse say? Something extremely important to Christians. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The he who is in you, if you're a faithful Christian, is God's spirit or the Holy Spirit. He who is in the world is the devil. We fail in facing evil when we really have not been convinced that the power of good is greater than the power of evil. And we believe that when we are, when we're few or maybe isolated in a crowd of sinners and militant unbelievers that we haven't got a chance and so we get quiet, we won't say a word, and we disappear as fast as we can. Satan loves to isolate a Christian in such an environment because he knows that it's our nature to become very easily discouraged by that fear. What fear? That we'll be ridiculed, that we'll be ostracized, maybe even that we'll be roughed up some. There is a maxim or a saying that every Christian needs to know as well as his own name, and it's this. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Think about that. Let me say it again for emphasis. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. That means when you've gone as far as you can go, in your own wisdom and strength and ability. It's time to let God take over. Too often, however, when a Christian as an individual or a group of them like a congregation have tried everything and have used up every known resource, the conclusion is drawn. We've done all we can and it's time to quit, whatever that is. Folks, I've heard that so many times in my life. I, I preached regularly in congregations for 40 years. I saw that many times. But here's what we should say when we've gone to that point. We can't think of anything else to do. We haven't got anything else to use. We should tell each other after we've told ourselves, now it's the time to turn this thing over to God and to petition him 
to work through us to defeat evil about us and win a victory for his cause. Brethren, if what we're trying to do is to God's glory and in conformity to his will, he will give us that victory when we think we're defeated. I said earlier that the word discouraged is hardly used in English versions of the Bible. But other words and expressions that mean just about the same thing are very common. The one that is most common in the New Testament in the original Greek is in kakain, in kakain. Literally, that means to lose heart. And that's the way it's translated. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, Paul uses it. He says, since we, he's talking about the apostles and other Christian workers, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. In the previous chapter, Paul contrasted the ministry of the Mosaic law with the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He called the Mosaic law one of death. Because the Mosaic law did this, it showed what sin is. Then it condemned that sin, but it lacked something very important. There was nothing in the law of Moses to take away sin. But because the Mosaic law was from God, Paul says it was nevertheless still glorious. The ministry of the gospel also defines sin. It also condemns that sin, but it contained the third thing that was missing in the law of Moses, and that was the power to remove sins by the atoning blood of Christ Jesus. For this supreme reason, Paul says on down there in verse nine, that the gospel ministry is far more glorious than the Old Testament ministry. By removing sin, it reconciles us to God, who is the ultimate source of all glory. There is a tremendous, or this rather, is a tremendous bastion of strength against discouragement, which is what Paul is saying there in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4. Because he was involved in such a glorious ministry, no affliction could cause him crippling discouragement. And folks, we share that ministry today if we're faithful Christians. Paul faced tremendous obstacles in his work. Listen to the resume of them. This is in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. Now folks, if you think you've had a hard day or a hard year, listen to this. Paul says, I have been beaten more times than I can count, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I spent in the deep. That meant floating on a plank or something in the ocean or a big lake or something. Then he said, I have been on frequent journeys 
and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and here's the really disappointing one, dangers among brethren, but then it adds who were false. I have been in labor and hardship <clears throat> through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of all our church, of all the churches. As I said, if you think you're having a hard time, what about what Paul experienced? If anyone had a reason to feel discouraged, it was this man. But yet he said, we have this ministry, this important ministry for God in Christ's name. So we do not lose heart. We do not become discouraged. Through the years I have known, <clears throat> or in other cases known of, several gospel preachers, I could give you their names, who left the work and went off into another profession because they lost heart in the progress of their work, because they were not receiving the credit that they should have been. And folks, anyone needs encouragement, which is the opposite of discouragement, even your preacher, your elders, your deacons. Also because in many cases, they weren't receiving a salary good enough really to live on because Satan is always active in trying to plant doubt and discouragement within us Jesus said in Luke 18 verse 1 that his disciples at all times ought to be praying and not to lose heart if you're feeling discouraged your first response shouldn't be to run here and there and try to find somebody that can prop you up it says Pray, pray yourself. If you're a Christian, God will hear you. Go to God in prayer. Give him your problems and you'll find help because Satan is always active. We need to do that. That expression to lose heart is the literal meaning of this word discourage. As I explained a while ago in giving you the history of the word. Satan tries to remove from us whatever courage we've got and take away our confidence and rob us of an expectation of succeeding and accomplishing something good. But Jesus says that real, sincere, continual prayer will prevent that kind of loss and will keep us strong in the Lord and steady in his service. The Lord wants us to succeed, and by his help we will if we stay strong in the faith and do not give up. The devil does not want us to know or think about the Lord's counsel in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He wants us to just be forgetful or oblivious of it. What does it say? Be steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil or labor is not, never, in vain in the Lord. 
When there is work to be done or a challenge to be met for the Lord, Satan will offer us all kinds of reasons <clears throat> to lose heart and not make the effort. In my own ministry as a preacher that I referred to a while ago, I heard so many of these reasons given in business meetings and discussions among leaders in the church of why projects should be cut off or abandoned or why plans for the progress of the congregation that had been laid out should just be suspended. The result, a lack of growth. Failure to convert the lost and settling down into the comfort of the status quo. Some of the things I heard said when things were proposed or tried, that won't work. It's too expensive. It takes too much time. We'd never get it done. I know these members here and they won't cooperate in that. Or another church has tried it and it didn't work. Just like you know, if something doesn't work over there, no way it can work here either. What about the excuse that Solomon met and recorded in Proverbs 22:13? <clears throat> he says, the, struggle, the, the, the sluggard said, a sluggard now is just a lazy bum. What, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be slain in the streets. So how do you expect me to go out there to try to do something? Folks, when you lack the heart to do something, you can always come up with a reason, and usually it's ridiculous. And I have an idea here in this text that Solomon was a little amused by this and recorded it for, for posterity, posterity <laughs> to show how ridiculous it is in its true color. It'd be like saying, you know, Folks, we shouldn't leave church today because there's an elephant out there. Would that deter you? No, we know there's no elephant out there. In this context, I'd like to read to you a little poem. I don't read poems much in lessons and sermons, but sometimes there's a good one. This one is out of a book published in 1963, uh, uh, rather 1993, by William J. Bennett. It's entitled The Book of Virtues. If you've never seen one of these and can get a hold of it, get a hold of it and read it. It's about that thick and it's just crammed with the most wonderful things. This poem came from that. The poem had to have a title and the author was anonymous, you know, that famous Greek poet, anonymous. But here's the way it goes. The road to success is never run by the man who says it can't be done. In solemn pride, he stands aloof and greets each venture with reproof. Had he the power, he had to face the history of the entire human race. We'd have no radio or motor cars, no streets lit by electric stars, street lamps, no telegraph or electric phone. We'd linger in the age of stone. The world would sleep if it were run by men who say it can't be done. Quick illustration. At the battle of Parker's Crossroads in West Tennessee, General Forrest had led a force through West Tennessee doing all kind of havoc against 
Union installations, and he was coming back into Middle Tennessee, and he got to Clifton, or which is real near Parker's Crossroads, and they thought they had him trapped. There was the Mississippi River, no boats to get across on at the moment. On this side was the Union force, and on the other side was the Union force, and behind him. And one of his staff officers came up and said, General Forrest said, we're going to have to surrender. Said, they're in front of us, they're in backward, behind us, we can't cross the river. He said, we won't. We'll win. And the man said, how? He said, I'm going to line y'all up in two groups, and we're going to charge them both ways at the same time. Folks, I don't know of any other case in recorded military history where anybody did that. But it surprised the Union force. He won. Some boats came, and he crossed the Mississippi River, brought his entire force back into, into Middle Tennessee in safety. When you say it can't be done, you're defeated. When you're saying, no, I believe in this. I'm going to do it with all my might. And certainly if it's the Lord's work, you'll succeed. Now in the latter part of the lesson, we're going to look at an example of when Satan used this strategy of discouragement upon Christians with some degree of success. The biblical text often doesn't say that Satan's work is what causes Christians to lose heart. But folks, it doesn't need to. As Jesus one time said, you shall know a tree by the fruit it bears. Discouragement is a negative force that leads to weaker faith, loss of confidence, slacking off in working for God. Therefore, it cannot come from God because God wants you and me as his, as his people to be strong in faith, very positive in it, to keep our confidence up because we know that we've got God's hand and he'll never let us go and, because, and, and to keep active in good works. When a congregation loses zeal and begins to abandon programs of work one after the other and works of service, it's evident, evident enough that the devil is present and he is active in the minds of those Christians. The Roman church had forces working inside of it to weaken its faith and to slow down progress. And Paul, by inspiration and in the letter that he wrote to them, called their attention to it. As he was concluding in chapter 16 and verse 19, he said, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. In this case, the presence and the hindering influence of Satan is clearly mentioned, and the same was true in the case of the letter to the Hebrew Christians, as we call them, though in that letter it is not specifically referred to. But folks, discouragement, the powerful weapon of Satan, was a major problem with the Hebrew Christians. In Hebrews 13:22, the writer calls his letter a word of encouragement. We call that book the letter to the Hebrews. That's a human title, it's not inspired. 
The man who wrote this book by inspiration called it a word of exhortation. That's the difference between what men do and what inspired men do. And the primary purpose of, ex of exhortation is to encourage. That means to put the heart into, to restore in the heart what's missing, courage, confidence, expectation of success. Some versions translate that verse 13.22 as a word of exhortation. The writer uses Jesus as the model of resisting the negative mood of losing heart in the face of difficulty. Look in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. He urged his readers, fix your eyes on Jesus. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That's being discouraged. To grow weary and to lose heart is the very essence of the meaning of discouragement. In Hebrews, there are pointed out and discussed 11 specific areas in which those Christians had lost heart and begun to drift away from the truth. Back in the 1970s, and the year specifically was 78, I developed a series of sermons on those 11 specifics to alert the congregation where I was then working and to encourage them to take measures against those things so that the congregation could become active and grow. A congregation that is active, is not active, will not grow. Here are a few of those things mentioned in Hebrews. It led those people to be slothful. That means lazy. Slackers. Second, despondent. Third, unenthusiastic. Fourth, to quit growing. And fifth, not to attend worship. That's half of them. Problems that churches almost everywhere experience to some extent. The Hebrew writer then compared discouragement to a disease that cripples your body and makes you weak and unable to function. We dread such a thing happening to us that makes us immobile and even homebound sometimes. We should dread it just as much in our spiritual life as we do in our physical life. Christians who have little enthusiasm, who have little willingness to do anything except just sit in a pew, who do, who do not really love very much to worship, they're spiritual cripples. Physically, they may be out in life, active and robust and moving around at high speed five or six days a week, but spiritually, they're cripples. Con folks, that really isn't my language. Consider how the Hebrew writer said it. In chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, therefore, strengthen your hands that are weak and your knees that have become feeble. Make straight the path of your feet. Don't wobble and, as you walk along, so that the limb that is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. For discouragement to succeed, it begins with dissatisfaction. 
the perception that being a Christian is not bringing you what you expected when you were baptized. It's easy for the devil to plant that thought in your mind and nurture it until it ruins you. Many people, I saw this happen so many times. I spent 15 years at one congregation, 17 years at another, and I watched it develop in full form. Many people put on Christ in baptism <clears throat> because they believe that it's going to bring them certain things that they really want, social advantages, solving their personal problems, making life easier and happier and more peaceful. Folks, it is true that being a faithful Christian leads to those kind of rewards and the New Testament in many places specifies the blessings that the Lord has for those who are his people. Life is meant by God to be peaceful and joyful and meaningful for a Christian. But hear me well, nowhere in the New Testament is the Christian told he or she will never experience problems. Christians get sick just like everybody else does. Christians are sometimes rejected by people around them. Christians sometimes begin to have difficulty in their job. Christians sometimes find it very difficult to pay their bills because of all kinds of problems. To some people, such disappointments lead them to discouragement. They think, hey, being a Christian is not working for me. It is not bringing me what I expected it to bring. Satan feeds that kind of thinking when you begin to entertain it. And if you let it go on, he'll take you right away from Christ and put you back in his kingdom of darkness. Folks, I've known many people who have had this very experience I've just described, who grew spiritually weak and cold and then left the church. When I went to them and talked to them, as I tried to do back then, many of them plainly told me about their bad feelings that caused them to leave the church. Jesus spoke of such people who let adversity ruin them in the parable of the sower. <clears throat> in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, he said, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with a lot of joy. But he doesn't have any firm root in himself. He's only temporary. Now listen to this. And when affliction arises or persecution because of the word, immediately he falls away. He sends up that white flag of surrender to Satan immediately. When we feel discouragement growing, we need to remember it is the tool of Satan being used to lead us away from Christ to destruction. Discouragement never accomplished anything good, so we need to resist it, and we need to rid our minds of it. God wants to help us, and he will help us if we will let him. Folks, when you think God is not helping you when you need it, it's because you're not letting him. Find out why you're not letting him and how you're not letting him. This is why we're told in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, 
Cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. The person who drowns in his own discouragement has not reached up to take the downward extending hand of God. Thank you for your attention.